This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 355, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. And you gotta add some with a little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, Daniel Glass here, back for another episode of the Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource. I just want to thank you all for joining me, as always, and today... We're going to get into some more theoretical, conceptual stuff related to drumming. And I'm going to talk about one of my favorite things to talk about, which is pulse. Um, I've talked a little about this. I've skirted around the edges of it in various other podcasts, various other sessions. Uh, Today, I want to hit it head on by talking about one of my sort of linchpins, I suppose you could say, of what I teach, not only to my private students, but to those who attend my uh, annual jazz intensive. And uh, by the way, the 2018 jazz intensive is about to open for registration. So if you're interested in what that's all about, you can go to my website, go under the clinic slash intensive tab and you can check out uh, the video from 2017 and get some sense of, of what it's all about. But one of the things that I teach, wherever I teach, however I teach, I teach about pulse. And the way we begin our discussion of pulse relates to, well, involves an exercise that I refer to as the throw-up exercise. Now, <laughs> a lot of you are probably scratching your heads going, Daniel, A, that's gross, and B, why do you want to discuss something about regurgitation with your students? So um, really, it's that's more of an attention grabber, the name, than anything else. What the throw-up exercise addresses are the two key parts of creating pulse, which is throw and up. Now, what do I mean by that? That's what we're going to sort of dig into today. So I always like to start my podcast by sharing a little story. I'm going to share a story today that takes you back into the history. If we think about the beginnings of American popular music, we can trace that back to uh, the days of, of marching. Um, John Philip Sousa and brass bands, believe it or not, this was the first kind of music created in America that set it apart from the music that came before it and was transported to the rest of the world as an export from America that people said, wow, this is something new and cool coming out of America. Now, there were other kinds of music that were popular around that time. American classical music was starting to differentiate itself from European music. Uh, American folk music in the form of songs written by a guy named Stephen Foster were starting to emerge. This is all around the time of the Civil War. But... Um, brass band music really exploded in the second half of the uh, 19th century, the late 1800s. And, um, of course, brass bands in the bass section, in addition to the drums, or in the rhythm section, you could say they had a tuba player. So as brass band music begins to gain more and more African-American influence, remember African-Americans couldn't really, didn't really participate 
in our culture, in our music so much until the end of the 1800s, because A, they were recovering from slavery, and B, it took white people a long time to begin to wrap their heads around the way that African Americans approached and uh, and, uh, interpreted European American music, which was all they had to interpret, because they were, in general, other than in a very small part of the country, New Orleans, uh, were not allowed to have African instruments, African language, African melodies, African rhythms. Um, they were, they were, you know, basically uh, allowed to interpret European, the European versions of all those things. But by the time we get to the end of the, the, the 1800s and we move into the 20th century, now the influence of African American interpretation on all these things starts to become, um, popular in the form of starting with ragtime music around the turn of the century, and then that morphed into jazz. So why am I going into this long arcane history lesson? Well, because at in the early uh, years of jazz and ragtime, uh, you, you still had a brass band concept, right? Jazz bands formed out of brass bands, marching bands, and they, um, the at the core of the bass section, as I said, was a tuba. Tuba players what they originally, their main job was to get, uh, you know, uh, soldiers marching down a field. So they would go, right, left, right, left. And this is sort of what we call a two feel. It has a very kind of marching back and forth kind of staccato feel, easy to, to march along with. And drummers were doing the same thing. Well, as we move forward, jazz becomes more popular. What happens in the around the teens, 20s, and certainly moving into the 30s is that jazz becomes more sophisticated. It moves farther away from being uh, simply a marching band that's now playing things a little differently, swinging things, adding more syncopation. These are the African-American interpretations I was talking about earlier. And uh, by the 1930s now, jazz is really its own art form. And the idea of the movement for marching now becomes movement for dancing. And, you know, I I always talk about this. Our job as drummers is to make people dance. However we do that, whether it's swing dancing, head banging, booty shaking, uh, free jazzing where people are just moving around in their seats. Um, I've talked about this at length that, that, you know, our job as drummer is to whatever style of music we play, whatever environment we're in is to tap into a large group of people and move them from A to B physically through our beat and that can take many, many different forms. Uh, I just admit, mentioned several examples. But as we get to the 1930s, one major innovation in jazz that happens is the evolution of the string bass. And the string bass had been around since the beginning of jazz. Of course, that instrument comes from classical music. But in addition to a guy blowing into a tuba, you also had a guy plucking a string bass. And what they s- soon sort of realized with the string bass is that instead of if instead of just going tum, tum, pum, they could go right and you could play all four beats to the bar and one of the advantages of the string bass is that the string bass player didn't have to breathe in order to to play his instrument or her instrument so um they could create sort of an endless flow of quarter notes and lo and behold People love to dance to this because it gave a more legato, smooth, flowing, continuous flow of pulse notes as opposed to the two feel, which is more staccato. So today, when we think of jazz, we still 
integrate the two feel, but generally when, when a jazz band is swinging, uh, they are playing four to the bar, four on the floor, you know, all these different names for a four-beat pulse. Now, what, again, does this have to do with drumming? What does this have to do with throwing up? Daniel, help me out here. Explain. So what this has to do with all of this is that African-Americans, as they, in their evolution of the way they interpreted European-American music, is that they put a certain feel towards this four-beat pulse. And what this feel is, is inherent all the way from early jazz right up to hip-hop today and all the styles that came in between, which is that the music has a certain quality, a certain characteristic to it. It has forward momentum, meaning it makes us move, it makes us dance, it makes us makes our gets our, our bodies moving in some way or another, but it also feels laid back. It has a certain chill factor to it. And, you know, if you look at every major style of American popular music that evolved from, like I said, the turn of the last century, so we're talking about early jazz, Chicago-style jazz, big band swing, we're talking about rhythm and blues, we're talking about rock, uh, rock, rock and roll, we're talking about funk music, soul music, hip-hop, uh, all of these styles maintain this characteristic, this flow of two sort of contradictory things. The music has forward momentum, and it also feels laid back. Now, I think this is one of the reasons why American popular music, since the days of early jazz, but more so, you know, in, in, in say, the last 50 or 60 years since, since uh, the dawn of rock and roll, why America's popular music always ends up becoming the world's popular music. And I think certainly... There's several reasons for that. One is that America was victorious in two different world wars where we went and were the occupying force in other countries at the conclusion of the war. And so we, we in, imported our popular culture, our music. And of course, jazz music, which was the popular music in America, both in the 1920s at the end of the First World War and in the 1940s at the end of World War II, uh, is very positive. It's very upbeat. It's very danceable. It's fun. It's uninhibited. That's another aspect of African-American contribution to American popular culture that makes it, people love it. And in other countries, maybe the culture is not so uninhibited. So being allowed to express yourself, the individualism of this music also makes it something that is appealing to other cultures. But I think one of the most predominant things is how it feels, how it makes you feel, how it makes you want to dance, but it also makes you feel good and it's it's relaxed. And if you, of course, if you've ever seen a great jazz drummer, they could be burning along, you know, at two three hundred BPM, and they don't look, you know, tense. Their 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 face is not grimacing. They're very relaxed, and there's this sense of cool, right? So, I in understanding the history, said, you know, what, what exactly is going on here and how can I help drummers to create this feel? Now, another term, another word for this feel is a, a sense of swing. And again, this, this word swing, what exactly does that mean? You know, you could say, hey man, this certainly swing is a style, right? The swing music. But you can also say that something really swings. And we often say a drummer like John Bonham, who's a rock drummer, man, he's really swinging because he just has this groovy feel. A lot of those great British drummers, uh, by the way, who were influenced by American popular music. They loved the blues. They loved 
uh, big band music. You know, a guy like John Bonham was influenced by Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich and Max Roach and Joe Morello. And guys like Mitch Mitchell were influenced by Elvin Jones. So, you know, just because the British invasion guys were British, all of their main influences were American. Um, And, you know, you can say the same thing over and over and over again in terms of American influence in a lot of cultures. And I'm not, I don't think I'm just being Amerocentric here. Certainly, America has been influenced by other cultures, and oftentimes it's immigrants from other cultures that impact what happens with the music. But I do think there's this consistent European-American basis of, you know, the type of instruments being used, the harmony, the language, uh, but then the African-American interpretation. And it just happens again and again, generation after generation. So I suppose we could debate that. Maybe you have a a, a different opinion about it. But this is sort of after years of studying this stuff, how I see the evolution of pulse and rhythm and the importance of it. So this is why it's important to understand swing, even if you are a rock drummer. You know, even if you are a hip-hop drummer or a funk drummer, because what you are trying to achieve achieve if you want to play like John Bonham or you want to play like Al Jackson, you want to play like Levon Helm, you want to play like Steve Gadd, you know, all of these drummers, you can trace what they are doing back to this same idea of pulse, of forward momentum, and laid back, okay? So let's talk a little bit more then about this idea of throw up, throw up. To me, it is a very, very challenging thing to be able to swing. And it's, it's even almost as challenging just simply to define what it means to swing, right? We can say, you know, Tony Williams swings. We could say John Bonham swings. We could say uh, Steve Jordan swings. You know, we could say Ian Pace swings. They all do swing. They all do capture something that's appealing. And so how, you know, but how do you get there? How do you find what it means to swing? So for me, the answer is in the throw up exercise. And of course, you know, I can't demonstrate it, but I can send you to some songs that I think really encapsulate the essence of this. So let's, before we get into songs and and all that sort of stuff, well, no, maybe we should talk about songs for a second. If you want a song, in my opinion, that is the ultimate example of swing, check out the Miles Davis song, Freddie Freeloader, right, from the album Kind of Blue. Now, this is a great reference point uh, in my discussion. I have a podcast about jazz, uh, which is called Keep Calm and Learn to Love Jazz. Um, If you listen to that podcast, I talk extensively about Freddie Freeloader. I play portions of the song, and you can really feel how the song is an immediate toe-tapper. When I put it on for my students, immediately they start grooving to it, but it's also like ridiculously laid back and chill. And so I use this as sort of my template to practice this throw-up exercise so that students can feel both of these elements happening simultaneously. So what do I mean by throw and up? Well, let's step back and look at how do other instrumentalists capture this idea of of creating quarter notes, four beats to the bar, where they, you know, give give the music these two contradictory feels. So if you look at a jazz bass player playing an upright bass, what they're doing is moving in a circular motion with their hand. They're not just smacking on the bass. They're going thom, 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 and their hands are going like in little circles usually. If you look at a jazz guitar player and they're playing four to the bar, their their hand, the way they're striking the strings, is moving kind of in a circular motion. And 
what you'll also notice about this motion is that it is a continuous motion. Now, why? Because they are playing quarter notes, right? We think of four to the bar is four quarter notes. Well, if we, you know, we as drummers, we don't think enough about note values. So, for example, I can play, you know, I can hit a pad, and if I hit a pad or a cymbal four times, I'm saying, well, that's four quarter notes. How do I know, you know, a cymbal's a loud instrument. If I hit a cymbal four times, how do I know if I'm playing quarter notes or if I'm playing 16th notes or I'm playing eighth notes? We as drummers, we don't necessarily, can't tell right off the bat. So we have to use these other instrumentalists as our guide, okay? Uh, the So think about this. You're trying to play quarter notes. If you play eighth notes, it's a different note value. The length of the note is different. So instead of it being ba, 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 you're now playing ba, 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 ba. If you want to play 16th notes, that's even shorter. Ba, 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 ba. So the way that we as drummers need to, you know, if, if, for example, the bass player and guitar player are playing quarter notes, if they're moving in their circles and they're moving their body through the entire length of each quarter note, through the entire value, right, then we as drummers need to be able to do the same thing. In other words, you know, if you think about a wheel rolling down the road and you think about that as each stroke, then your stroke begins at 12 o'clock, As you come down and you hit that 6 o'clock, as you come back up again, the rebound of your stroke, that's 12 o'clock again, and then you should immediately already be going into the next motion. So you are playing the full value of each quarter note, okay? If a bass player, you know, they have to be aware of the value of the notes. So if a bass player plays a, you know, dom, 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 that's very different than playing dom, 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 which is very different than playing dup, 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 right? So if the rest of the band, if the goal, say we're talking about swing music, although this will translate into, into this throw-up idea, will translate into rock and roll, and I'll show how that'll happen in a minute. But if the rest of the band is playing these long, round, wheel, rolling down the road, continuous quarter notes, and a drummer is playing a shorter motion, kick, kick with their stick, then we are not playing the same thing as the rest of the band. We are not going to be able to develop that sense of pulse, and we're not going to be able to swing. So the throw-up exercise is designed to get us to move and to play each pulse note. We could say they're quarter notes. We could also think of them as any other kind of note. But for the, for the purposes of this, let's just say quarter notes. So Each time we throw the stick at the drum, we need to throw it, right? Because we need to make people dance. That's in the history of what this American pulse achieves. That's part one, is that it it has forward momentum. So we must throw the stick. However, as soon as we throw the stick, we have to get out of the way and allow the stick to rebound for the remainder of that quarter note. Now, to help kind of clarify what I'm talking about here, let's use the analogy of bouncing a basketball. If you bounce a basketball... When you bounce a basketball, some things kind of automatically happen. You, first of all, you don't, you're not all over the ball and you don't, you're not in charge of it the entire time of each bounce. You start at the top of the motion where the ball is, is, is up off the ground, obviously. You push down on it and then you're out of it, right? You let it go. 
it heads to the floor. The floor is flat. The ball is round. There's a thing called gravity, which takes it down already. We don't have to micromanage the down of a basketball. And then it bounces back up to us. And what do we do when it gets to us? We don't stop it and then lift it back up and start over again. We go with it. We allow it to expand the full value of its rebound by allowing our hand to move up with it before we throw the next bounce. And when someone is very good at dribbling a basketball, if you watch a professional basketball player, they move very fluidly with this bounce. They have a rhythm. They can run down the court, walk down the court. They can dribble slow. They can dribble fast. But at every, every way that they are dribbling, there's a minimum of effort that they are using to create this idea of the ball bouncing down, coming back to them. And they go with the physics of the situation. They go with gravity. They go with the rebound of the ball. And therefore, they're very economical about how they move through the whole, you know, how they dribble the ball, essentially. So that is what we need to do when we are doing the throw up, okay? Most drummers are very comfortable with throwing the stick downward. We're very great about the downward push, right? But what we often don't consider what we don't think about is the up. And therefore, when I work with my students on throw up, uh, you know, I focus on how that stick comes up, how we go with the stick, how we don't immediately rush to the next down. We allow the stick to come up. We get out of its way. We move with it. And then at the top of the motion, just like with a basketball, we throw again. Now, there's a lot to this because not only do I work on the exercise itself, but I take the opportunity with this very simple, very focused exercise to focus on the, the, the fine points of grip. So what you can do the throw up exercise in French, you could do it in German, you could do it in traditional, you could do it in American, uh, whatever, you know, your grip of choice. But the idea is that you learn how to use a minimum of downward force to allow gravity to help you with that, to go at the pad in a particular way, to, you know, to, to think about going at the pad and the smarter, and I'll talk about that in a second, but then to get out of the way and allow the rebound to happen. Now this, you may be saying to yourself, Daniel, you're just hitting four hits on the pad. What's the big deal? And I say to you that, you know, if you've listened to what I was talking about at the beginning of this of this podcast, the history, the evolution, where this idea of pulse comes from, how it has been a part of the world's popular music now for over a hundred years, this is an incredibly important thing to think about. Um, so let's let's talk about. Well, let's see. I had another point here I was going to make about how we want to feel this thing. Yes. So the the up. I'm going to say this over and over again. I've already said it over and over again. Philosophically, to me, it's all about the ups. It's all about the ups. Something that, you know, drummers are very comfortable with down. But what we don't realize is we have this perfect force, gravity, that already is pushing down at, like I said, a perfectly consistent way. So if we can harness gravity, if we can use less down and think more about the ups, and this is it covers a vast variety of different kinds of techniques that I talk about, whether playing taps or strokes or molar or finger exercise, all of these things uh, are, are very um, all about the up, you know, so I can't really get into that in a, in a podcast. Obviously, I work on it with my students over 
over the course of our studies. But in the case of the throw-up exercise, the important part here is the up. And it's, of course, to work on your technique as well as you do this. Now, let me comment one more a little bit more, let me get a little more deeply into this idea that I said about going at the pad. So when I teach, a lot of what we do is on the pad. I've talked a lot about this in my, um, in my, my session on form called The Importance of Form and why we work on a pad. But we do spend a lot of time on a pad. Pad, is, pad work is essential. It's, I can't even, you know, when I was younger, I was like, a pad? What are you talking about? I'm a drum set player. Why do I need to spend all my time on a practice pad? That's not going to help me be a better drum set player. How am I going to move between, you know, between the different instruments and get my bass drum and, you know, hi-hat technique together and all that? Pad work is where it's at. And I didn't really understand this until I studied with Freddie Gruber, and he totally blew my mind in so many levels. And I've talked about Freddie, of course, uh, throughout the, the, you know, this Daniel Glass show, um, many, many different episodes. But going at the pad. So what do I mean by going at the pad? Again, let's use an analogy of a boxer. Most of us, when we think about what we're doing when we strike a surface, is that we're going up and down. But in reality, we're not really going up and down. We're going at a surface. Think about a boxer who, you know, a boxer jabs a lot. And when they jab, they keep their opponent in front of them and they go, bam, right at that opponent. And a jab is like a short little bam. You're already, as you're striking, you're coming back, you know, and you're thinking about what happens after. You're not, you're not driving through the opponent. It's a jab. So it's the same sort of thing if you're thinking about this throw-up exercise that you want to be a boxer and you want to sort of imagine that you're jabbing at the pad as you do this exercise and with a minimum of effort already with the idea of what's going to happen after the fact. So you throw, bam, right at that pad and then boom, you're out of the way and you allow the rebound to happen. Uh, So it's just another way of thinking about this. Now, if you're wondering and you want to see the throw-up exercise, um, I will put a video up uh, in the show notes, and you can link to that. I'll put a couple different videos where I sort of touch on this in a variety of ways. One is a a live lesson that I did on Drumeo um, called The Evolution of Timekeeping, I think is the name of it. It really should have been called The Evolution of Pulse because I'm talking a lot about these same issues. You can see me demonstrate sort of in a variety of different ways related to what I'm talking about today. And I'll also put up a video that I send to my students. Every time I have about, I have a bank of about 75 videos now that I've just made of me demonstrating exercises. So if you study with me on Skype, for example, every lesson at the end of the lesson, I will send you a short video that includes um, uh, the, um, you know, whatever exercises we worked on. And right, and these videos are unlisted. You can't get to them unless you are, unless you have the link. They're just for my students, but I'm going to make one of those public uh, in the show notes of this podcast. So you can see my, you can see me demonstrating the throw up exercise. So um, let's talk about music now for a second. The idea with the throw up exercise is not I don't want, I always tell my students this, don't rush out and try to do this in your gig or on your rehearsal or in your full-on practice session. Stay on the pad and simply work on, the goal here is to feel what is happening. We want to be able to feel ourselves throw the stick. We want to be able to see that we create a big, beautiful rebound that lasts 
as long as we possibly can before we throw it again. And we want to be able, the best way to, to work on this is to play along with music. And by the way, let me, let me, let me just reiterate how throw and up those two elements capture this concept of the American pulse. So by throwing the stick, obviously that is, that is the forward momentum that we talked about. And then allowing the up to happen, letting the stick come up and allowing yourself to go with the stick like you would with a, a ball that you're dribbling and move up with it as it comes up until it loses energy again, that is, will give you the laid back factor of the American pulse because it, it has, you've got the forward momentum, but then you, you're, you're getting out of the way and allowing something to happen before you take control and throw downward force again into the picture, right? And if you, you know, I've talked about pocket a lot. I write about it a lot on my Facebook page, uh, Daniel Glass, drummer, author, educator. Go follow me there, by the way. We have a really great community, almost 34,000 people now talking about lots of stuff like this, looking at a lot of philosophical and uh, sort of um, technical issues of drumming, and also a lot of really cool old school videos that I post all the time. Um, But, you know, the throw and the up, and I cannot overstate, as I said earlier, the importance of the up. Drummers know about down, they know about the throw. We are not so familiar with either letting the stick come back up as a result of the work we've done or preparing ourselves to throw down. The preparation, the setup often is where the magic happens or the rebound is where the magic happens. And so understanding more about these sort of negative spaces where the reaction happens, where you're not actually playing, you're setting up or you're responding or allowing, that's the magic in drumming that is often is so often missed. If you don't think about the up, then you're always going to get there early on your down. You're always, if you're so focused on the down, there's an imbalance and you'll be in a rush. And even if it seems like everything's going groovily, you're going to get there two or three milliseconds early every single time instead of waiting and allowing those milliseconds to happen. And so I always use this analogy. I've used it in in other, um, you know, other, other podcasts, but if, if you wonder why Steve Gadd can get up and play the most simple rock beat that all of us can play, right? That type of a beat. Well, we can all play that beat. So why is it that Gadd gets hired by, you know, fill in the blank, Chick Corea, James Taylor, Shaka Khan, uh, you know, uh, all of the great, amazing people that he plays with and tours with. Why does he get hired by them? Because he understands these concepts. He is imbibes, imbues this American pulse. You know, Steve Jordan's another great example of a guy that's just a, you know, we call these guys groove masters, right? And, you know, Jim Keltner. Uh, I mean, there's just countless examples of guys that have spent their lives in studios or working with the great artists of the last 50, 60 years. It's because they are tapped into this pulse. And of course, it doesn't, you know, you could say jazz artist, rock artist, fusion artist. It doesn't matter what style of music that it is. If you're tapped into this, you have this awareness, you can get this mu- the music to feel a certain way. It's not what you're doing with your limbs. It's what you're producing. It's a sound. And it's, of course, a consistency with which you do it. This is the difference between great players and everyone else. We all can play a basic rock beat, but 
not everybody gets hired by those artists, you know, and you might wonder why. It's not that Steve Gadd is imbued with some kind of magic. It's that he thinks about things in a certain way and allows things to happen in a certain way. And so I've spent a lot of time working on this, practicing this, thinking about this, and of course, teaching this. And um, so let's talk about music for a second. Uh, Freddie Freeloader, what I always encourage my students when working on the throw-up exercise is not to do it with a click. You can, which is fine, but to do it with music because we need to feel in great examples of of music where this this idea of throw-up, of forward momentum and laid back are happening in in the most beautiful way. And so, of course, I mentioned already Freddie Freeloader. And the other great thing about Freddie Freeloader is it's a nine-minute song, and it is so consistent from start to finish. And so you can just dig in and hang out with Jimmy Cobb, the great drummer on that record, for nine minutes and just do the throw-up exercise on a pad. You know, don't do anything else. Don't add anything else. It is so profoundly fundamental this idea of creating a pulse, that if we jump to adding other limbs too quickly, then the first thing we're going to do is fall off of that pulse. We may be playing quarter notes, we may be playing a spangling pattern, but we're going to, it's not going to have that import, right? That, 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 that throw and that up that we absolutely need to have when we are creating music that is based in this pulse. So it's not just a mechanical exercise, it's about feeling it. And that's why I say, do the exercise 20 times, 30 times, 40 times. I've, I've had songs that I played along with for nine months. And after that, I looked, and I'll tell this story at some point in another, another episode. But one, one song that I worked on when I was getting ready to do the CD for my book, The Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming, I spent nine months woodshedding and used one song as my template. And after nine months, just by chance, I looked on the iTunes and it will tell you how many times you played a song. And I played this song 535 times. So I, you know, the profound effect you will have by digging in with something, take a song like Freddie Freeloader and play it over and over and over and over again. I cannot tell you how powerful this is. Now, so let's now take a right turn. And you probably saying, if you're, if you're still listening to this long podcast about this deep subject, simple yet incredibly deep and profound, you might be saying, Daniel, I'm a rock drummer. I don't play jazz. So what good is it, A, going through Freddie Freeloader, and B, how does this relate to me as a rock drummer? So the next song I give my students to work on in using the throw-up exercise is When the Levee Breaks by Led Zeppelin. And generally, I'm teaching them the throw-up exercise in the French grip, which is the thumb on top of the stick, and I teach it to them in the German grip. And of course, I also teach the traditional, but let's just focus on French and German for a minute. German grip, of course, is where the hand is on top of the stick, and you're using the wrist generally to lift lift and, and drop the stick, although it's, it's much deeper than all that. But what's great about using Freddie Freeloader as a jazz example is Let's talk about John Bonham first, and then we'll compare the two songs. So John Bonham, Led Zeppelin. I put on When the Levee Breaks, and I say to them, okay, what do you hear when you hear this song? And they usually go, well, I hear boom, bap, um, bap, right? The kick and snare pattern. And I say, okay, let's listen to the song again. And now what I want you to do is listen to the hi-hat pattern. And they go, what do you mean? It's just eighth notes. Listen to the hi-hat pattern. Now, when you put on this song, first of all, the way they've mixed the track, the hi-hat sits beautifully above the whole song for the entire time. It just 
flows along up there. And the first thing you notice is when you start focusing on the hi-hat pattern is that although the kick and snare are very big and tubby and laid back, the hi-hat drives. And it drives consistently. Every note is consistent and strong. It's like cha, 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 cha. And what you kind of realize is that what John Bonham's doing is giving you this laid back thing underneath, but on top, it's driving and it's on top of the beat. And it is the throw-up exercise. Essentially, the throw-up exercise works perfectly over, you know, you can make that lock in beautifully with what Bonham is doing. And if you think about Bonham, he grew up in the 1950s in in the Midlands of England, and there was no such thing as a rock drummer at that time. There was no such thing as a rock drum teacher, certainly. So he would have learned from a jazz teacher, as did all those cats of his generation, by the way, which is why a lot of them have so much swing in their playing and sound a lot like jazz drummers, except they're doing it in a rock setting. But they have the same jazz desire for improvisation. They use a lot of jazz chops. They have that sort of almost... It's not perfectly straight. It's kind of a swung version of straight, right? So they, these, you know, a drummer like John Bonham would have studied with a jazz teacher and would have studied Spangalang. And if you take, and, and therefore the quarter note pulse and learning how to drive the time in that particular way. When you compare Freddie Freeloader and when the levee breaks, you have a pulse about here, right? Now what's happening is, Freddy, that's Fred, That's quarter notes, right? One, two, three, four. When you put it in the context of when the levee breaks, uh-uh, bap, uh-uh, uh-uh, bap. Same pulse, but now it's eighth notes on a hi-hat, okay? So I show quarter notes, ride cymbal, French grip. Use Freddy Freeloader in your ride cymbal hand. Now, when you do when the levee breaks, see how the same flow, the same throw-up works with eighth notes in the German grip on the hi-hat in a rock setting. Get it? Throw-up exercise works in both scenarios, okay? And the music feels and flows the same in both scenarios. And you could see how the idea of the pulse has transferred from jazz into rock, and it's still there, okay? So that's why I share this with every student that I get, not just students interested in jazz, because the profundity of this throw-up exercise is so deep. And I often tell students, if you and I never have any more than this one drum lesson, what I hope is that you do nothing but practice this exercise, because this one exercise will profoundly change your drumming. It will give you, you know, if you spend, and by the way, this is not learn it once and then rush and try to do it in in everything that you do as a, as a drummer. It means sitting with your pad and doing it with these songs or you can choose other songs. What I like as again as I said is this a nice medium tempo. It forces you to get a larger up as part of the throw up. It forces you to relax and what you want to do is to get your body to feel the ease and effortlessness of what you're trying to do. Capture the ease and effortlessness with which the musicians are creating this feel in their music that you are kind of tapping into. I should mention the third song, the one that I played 535 times with, the third song that I give my students when when they come study with me, is a song called Hard Work by an artist named John Handy. And it's from 1974. It's what they call soul jazz music, which is sort of the idea of putting a groove 
a more of a funky kind of a groove with in a jazz environment and making sort of combining those two concepts together soul or funk music and jazz and sadly what soul jazz turned into is what we call smooth jazz today which I'm not a fan, let's say. (laughs) But soul jazz is really incredibly powerful music. And this song, Hard Work, is very deep and very profound. And I I think I mentioned this. The drummer on Hard Work is a guy named James Gadsden, who is one of our great, great groove masters, one of the true treasures of American drumming. If you're not hip to him, go check him out. Uh, He's one of the greatest, you know, not only just drummers, but on this song, he's playing a shuffle. So what I offer is the throw-up exercise as a jazz quarter note pulse, as a rock eighth note thing, and as a a shuffle feel. And of course, I don't want you to play a shuffle when you practice it. I just want you to play the flow of notes using the throw-up exercise. But what I can guarantee you is, and I literally can guarantee this, uh, of course, we need to be you know, with my students, I work on it with them, and we develop and dig in to the fine points of how they're holding the stick, how they're going at the pad, how they're sitting, uh, how the whole body arm mechanism is moving with wrist and arm, and how we, you know, get into the particulars of this. But I I can tell you that I pretty much had a 100% success rate with just working on the throw-up exercise by itself. It will start to show up in your playing, whether you like it or not. It not only works on this idea of throw and up, it allows you to relax more into what you're doing, and it allows you your internal clock to develop very, very deeply and very powerfully, simply by sticking to the basics, doing this one exercise, and locking in with guys who have incredible internal clocks, who are metronomic, so metronomic in their playing. And feeling what they feel, which is they drive the the music, they give it forward momentum, but it's incredibly laid back at the same time. And you will then enter into your history, your tradition, your heritage. I don't care what style you play, you are coming from this heritage. And why not dip in, capture the essence of the masters, capture this flow from your past so that you can begin to contribute it to what you're doing today. Why? Because it will make you more employable. It will make you more employable, whether it's getting hired in that band you always wanted to be in, whether it's making you better with the band you are in, whether it's making you better as a freelancer. I guarantee you a better awareness of this exercise and how to utilize it in your playing, whatever style you play, is going to make you better and and through better, more employable. Why? Because what is pretty much every band looking for from a drummer, whether it's a professional situation, whether it's a freelance situation, whether it's a for hire situation or it's a band, they want you to play good time. And I'm sorry, too many drummers take good time for granted. They think that the ability to play a groove, to put arms and legs together in exhibit A is enough. It's not. It's not enough. You must move people with your pulse. You must, first of all, grab your band by the scruff of their throats without saying a word, and you must move them to where they turn around and go, yep, this is it. You must provide a big, beautiful bed of time into which they can easily jump. Some people say his his pocket was so deep or his groove was so wide you could drive a truck through it. Well, guess what? You know, I may not have as many chops as a lot of drummers out there, 
And I don't, and I'm the first to admit that because my focus is on time feel for me. And I moved to New York seven, eight years ago, almost eight years ago. I now get called, it's taken me a long time because freelancing is, was not the thing I moved here to do. I just talked about that in my, my, in my Birdland podcast. Check that out. You can learn more about my moves to New York and what I've been doing here. But what people tell me and why people hire me and why I'm now a busy freelancer in New York City is you're easy to play with, Daniel. Man, it feels really good to play with you. Those are the kinds of comments I get. And those are the kinds of comments I want because... That is what people are looking for. Yeah, if you're going to, you know, play in a prog fusion band, then yeah, you need a lot of chops. But most drummers spend most of their time working on chops or fancy stuff and ignoring the fundamentals because they think they already have those down and they don't. And, you know, again, visit my podcast on the importance of form, but I am a freak for fundamentals. And, you know, I did another podcast on deliberate practice. Understanding more about fundamentals is really what is going to elevate you to those higher levels, period. And I can't, it's, I can't overstate it enough. So in any case, I think we're going to wrap it up here. I've been blathering on for 45 minutes about this exercise. Again, I will post in the show notes a couple of different video examples that you can go check out so you can see me actually demonstrating the throw up exercise. Um, I encourage you to jump in with these songs and start maybe trying to do this yourself. Of course, I'm available if you want to um, jump in and do a lesson to talk more about this. If you have any questions, feel free to email me uh, or you know shoot me a a message on Facebook or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm reachable and I love to talk about this stuff. So uh, peace, good luck, keep throwing up, and I'll see you next time on the Daniel Glass Show here on Drummer's Resource. Drummer's Resource.